It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, rape, violence, and addiction. I debated with myself over opening with this quote. Because it's such a famous quote, it's almost a cliché. Plus, my only foray into the works of Leo Tolstoy was Haji Murad in college. But Kevin has read Anna Karenina, so I'll let him take it away. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to debate the merit of Tolstoy's musings here. But I will say... It's a line that popped into my head when I first began reading old newspaper clippings about the family behind the Donut Shop murders. We are going to be talking about the McCrary-Taylor clan once more today. 
Unless we end up landing a big interview or uncovering something remarkable, this will be the last episode on the case for a while. Last week, we heard from Jerry Nations, the son of Ginger McCrary Taylor and the grandson of Sherman McCrary. Jerry and his brothers got hauled around the country during the murderous spree helmed by their grandfather and stepfather. And that got us thinking, how did this even happen? If each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, then how unhappy did these people have to be to not only commit robberies, rapes, and murders, but drag their kids along for the ride? My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is The Donut Shop Killers, A Family Gone Wrong. We wanted to know more about what drove the McCrary-Taylor family. And we knew just the expert we could speak to about this, Dr. Glenn Doyle. He's a clinical psychologist based in both Chicago and Washington, D.C. Here's Dr. Doyle. Um, My specialty is working with serious post-traumatic and dissociative disorders, like that's what I, I wrote my dissertation on and, and that I have a lot of, of experience uh, working with and uh, with kind of like a, a secondary specialty with uh, with uh, addiction and kind of compulsive behavior disorders. Um, you know, I'm a recovering addict myself. So obviously it's something that's that's very near and dear to my heart. I spend most of my day, again, working with people with uh, with uh, complex PTSD, what we call complex PTSD, which is a little different from what we think of as classic PTSD. Like we think classic PTSD is as you know, 9-11, something terrible happens to you, you're in war and you're coping with that. Complex trauma, um, which is more of what I deal with, is you know, sometimes we call it developmental trauma because it, it's the dealing with the after effects of very often growing up in uh, uh, traumatizing circumstances. So things like long-term um, family-centered abuse, 
um, you know, these kinds of things, you know, sometimes kind of prisoner of war situations. But um, that's mostly what uh, what I work with. Um, I also do consultation with uh, with uh, other therapists who don't have as much experience with uh, complex trauma disorders. Dr. Doyle is the president of a nonprofit called Seek Safely, which advocates for ethics and accountability in the self-help industry. You can catch him on Wondery's Guru. Also follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Doyle Says. We're going to be playing excerpts from our discussion because we think it's an interesting conversation and because Dr. Doyle had great insight into some of the factors behind the family that committed the donut shop murders. This isn't about rationalizing the crimes of the McCrary Taylors. But the more we understand the psychology underpinning these killers and the damage that physical and emotional abuse and addiction can have on members of a family, the better. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Doyle, which has been lightly edited for clarity. It's not about excusing people who do bad things, but it is about like maybe understanding it. So maybe uh, there can be more resources put into combating some of this trauma to, you know, prevent murderers, basically. Um, Absolutely. Well, and, and that came up a lot. Like, so my my internship for my for my um, doctorate was a forensic internship. So I did a lot of evaluations for like on the on the side I was working on was they had already been accused of the crime. But so I was doing these evaluations for fitness to stand trial, right? Like, like so they could understand the charges against them and that there's a procedure here and they had the right to counsel and, and kind of all these things. Or was their mental illness such that they couldn't even really get to that point? And frequently what we found, especially like when we were doing, dealing with a lot of folks with like a lot of psychotic disorders and stuff. So it was a real question about whether they could even understand what was happening now, let alone what they did. But the other thing that you almost always found was like like whatever else had going on, psychotic disorder, whatever. There's just a ton of trauma and and often like a ton of addiction stuff. So like the stuff that came out in this case is is not at all unusual for serious forensic cases like this. Now, to be honest, there's a reason that I locked on to the alcoholic angle in this case. Why I read details about Sherman McCrary's liquor habit with morbid fascination. Like Dr. Doyle, I'm a recovering addict. I'm an alcoholic, and by the time this episode comes out, I'll be over two years sober. So just know that we don't come into this topic with any judgment for someone who is struggling with addiction. Based on his behavior in news reports, it seems fair to posit that the McCrary household was helmed by an alcoholic. Press reports about Sherman McCrary indicate that he drank at least a quart of hard liquor every day. Later on, Carl Taylor would claim that his father-in-law was the impetus behind the murder spree. Taylor himself is likely being self-serving here, but it's certainly fair to say that Sherman McCrary played a big role in how all of this happened. Tell us a bit about, uh, you know, addiction, though, and sort of like it's not, you know, and you mentioned it doesn't come up in a vacuum. You don't just become an addict, whether it's with drugs or alcohol or whatnot. Um, Maybe if you could speak a bit about like how a person might come to be in that sort of position. Sure. So when we talk about addiction, what we're really talking about is how somebody um, handles or doesn't handle um, stressors, 
what and those stressors could be like internally generated like feelings or memories or something uh could be externally generated you know you know things coming at them things happening to them we all have the problem of how to deal with with stressors you know we all have the problem of how to deal with feelings we all have the problem of of how to deal with what happens to us whether or not it's particularly traumatic like even everyday stressors like every human being has these problems ideally when we're growing up we get really good uh, modeling and instruction on how to handle stressors we get really good you know modeling and 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 instruction on how to solve problems a lot of times unfortunately that doesn't happen for a lot of reasons either there's trauma happening you know uh, there's addiction happening in the family whatever but when a kid grows up and 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 we don't really have a lot of great modeling and we don't have a a, a lot of great uh, instruction on how to solve these problems that everybody has to deal with we very often reach outside of ourselves for something and in and of itself that's not necessarily a terrible thing right you can um, reach outside of yourself for you know like a medication and that can be used really appropriately and really effectively you can even reach outside of yourself for a substance and it's not always problematic right if you kind of learned the the skill of you know knowing when and how to kind of you know recognize when it's a problem or when it's being destructive etc etc right uh, we usually find when addiction develops that for whatever reason you know that skill set uh, of being able to set limits with it you know just isn't there and it's not always a problem of you know terrible modeling or or lack of instruction like you know a lot of people are born with with you know really potent genetic dispositions toward addiction like there's a the, the example that i always use you know if 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 anybody listening is a fan of the west wing it's a character leo mcgarry who's you know famously an alcoholic right and and leo in one episode of the west wing summed it up for me really well he's like boy when you're drinking and you're starting to feel a certain way you know why would you ever not want to feel that way again right like it makes no sense to say no to continuing to feel that way right in order to say no to continuing to feel either awesome or relieved or what not again we kind of need a set of tools and skills that for lots of reasons people don't have and always developed growing up so that kind of in a nutshell again there are all types of addictions and kind of all severities of addiction so it's really hard to say well this is the thing that leads to addiction but generally speaking this is what you find in most cases of addiction with this family that we're talking about the McCrary Taylor clan um you know we it's it's of course not the problem in this case is not just that the dad is drinking too much it's they're also going around killing people often women um these are sexual assaults typically motivated by seemingly sex but also money and and i think you pointed out in your email and i thought this was very apt, a lot of sadism with how these things are carried out they're pretty brutal and so you know as a psychologist as someone who sort of like you know learning about this crime and studying this crime what does that sort of tell you about uh you know what kind of psychological inferences can we make based on some of that so the the obligatory disclaimer i'm not familiar with the people like i've not examined them so i'm not going i can't speak to you know what was motivating these people specifically i'm kind of around the i mean unfortunately it's it's a common enough pattern that we can kind of speak in generalities when stuff like this tends to happen one thing that we know happens with substance use of almost every kind is is that the inhibitions get lowered right 
So these things that normally keep us from um, exploding in rage at somebody, for example, or that that might keep us from, you know, impulsively being physically violent or impulsively, you know, indulging in a, uh, a sexual appetite. These things that are kind of the guardrails of the human psyche, substances tend to mess with it. You know, like something that we know about substances, um, almost invariably, they tend to affect the uh, kind of the frontal lobe, the cerebral cortex, which is that part of our brain where our decision making happens and where our inhibitions happen. On the one hand, this is one of the reasons why a lot of people use substances to begin to, to purposefully become a little less inhibited, right? You know, they loosen up and they, you know, the anxiety goes down a little bit. And on the other hand, if it's chronically abused, that part of the brain, again, where we do all of our executive functioning can actually become damaged, right? Um, you know, it, it doesn't spring back when we sober up again and again and again. So I assume that part of what might have been happening kind of in, in this situation is that there is long-term alcohol abuse. I assume that we're probably literally dealing with brain damage. Like I remember, um, you know, growing up, it, uh, you know, so my father was an alcoholic and I, and I remember growing up, um, you know, we learned in school what actually happens with alcohol in the brain. And, and my teacher's like, yeah, literally kills brain cells. And I remember thinking, you know, my dad was a brilliant guy. Like he was an entrepreneur and a business owner and whatnot, turned into a real jerk, not to mention a real dummy, you know, God rest him, when he was drinking. And I remember being very impressed by that, that man, if, if that, that really is brain damage. Like that's not necessarily a choice he's making insofar as I don't for a minute believe that my dad sat down and said, hmm. I'm gonna become really mean tonight. That's what I wanna do. What I wanna do is just forget kind of who I am. And do, but again, our brain, you know, there's, there's a physiological reaction, especially over the long term, that makes it hard for us to be decent people. You know, it makes it hard for us to, to kind of hold back kind of these sadistic tendencies. You can make the argument that, okay, well, they would have to be, the sadistic tendencies would have to be there in the first place, you know, for a lack of inhibition to lead to something like this happening. Um, but it's something that research kind of shows again and again is that, you know, human beings, you know, with, you know, there are certain extreme exceptions, but the vast majority of human beings kind of fall under the bell curve and a pretty even dis distribution of kind of what we would call our sadistic tendencies, right? Um, so what might actually make the difference between those people we know to be sociopaths and people we know to be mass murderers is, and, and people who you know might have those fantasies or thoughts, you know, might channel it into writing a fiction book or producing a TV series, producing a podcast. I don't know. Um, what might make the difference between someone like that versus somebody who goes on and, and actually acts out these things, um, you know, might be kind of a long-term effect of, of substance abuse. Now, the flip side of that is, you know, these crimes also had a lot of executive functioning happening. There was a lot of planning happening. So you could also kind of, you know, perhaps make the argument that, boy, if these people were sufficiently, um, you know, brain damaged that they could rein in their sadistic tendencies. You're telling me that, okay, so that was damaged, 
but they are still high functioning enough to you know, stake out these locations and kind of watch the habits of these people that they're going to victimize and, and wait until closing time. And then, yeah, right. So there are lots of ambiguities. What, what I will say is, is that going back to what I mentioned a moment ago about solving the problems of living, solving the problems of stressors and how to handle emotions, how to handle urges, how to handle traumas, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one thing that in families where there tends to be a lot of addiction, there also tends to be a lot of neglect, just tends to be, and there tends to be a lot of neglect, not infrequently, there tends to be abuse. So it may not be the case that there just wasn't problem solving modeled. It may actually be the case that there was problem solving modeled of a terrible, terrible type, right? You know, some people might have seen problems quote unquote solved by somebody getting the crap beaten out of them. You know, somebody is is annoyed by another person, doesn't like another person, or is attracted to another person. And that problem is solved by some violent acting out. So there are multiple possibilities. Um, we, the, the one commonality is that for these problems of, of living to be solved, it makes it really hard when there's a substance and, and an addictive behavior pattern kind of happening. Because there are kind of two parts to that, right? Like there's the, the effect that the substance is having on the nervous system. But there's also the compulsive behavior that goes along with addiction. Kind of the, you know, the, 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 the substance seeking and the substance dependence and the kind of the, uh, the attachment that goes to the substance that, you know, ideally would be to family and to society and to, you know, maybe spirituality, right? Over to, there's a lot going on. You know, what fascinates people about these crimes is that in a way they were sort of committed by a family unit, which is unusual. Uh, unfortunately, it does happen sometimes, but to have a roving gang that's basically a family going around raping and killing people is, is, is certainly not the norm for serial killers. But, you know, what does that tell you about, you know, or, you know, speaking generally, because obviously you haven't examined any of these folks, most of them are dead and the ones who are surviving are either in prison or we can't find them. <laughs> but um what does that tell you about a family that's actually so enmeshed that it's going around actually doing really horrible crimes together? So I think there are a few factors that that can help explain why something like this happens. Um, I think it's impossible to uh, overstate the effect of you know, what, what social psychologists would call um, the de-individuation effect. So, you know, the, the research is really solid on the fact that there is, there is stuff that a person wouldn't consider doing, but if it seems to be accepted by the group they're in, they will do it. And, and it's really shocking, actually, like the group doesn't have to be that big for the de-individuation effect to, to kick in, right? Essentially what, you know, what social psychologists think happens is that the the moral culpability now there are lots of theories as to how we evolve into into morally thinking and feeling and deciding beings and it's it's not coincidental that all that developmental stuff i was talking about with like attachment and problem solving we're morally developing at the same time right so if all that is 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 scrambled like our moral development tends to 
you know, jump the rails as well. Like it'll be really weird for like one part of the development to be unaffected. All the other rest of the development is, is completely screwed, right? But again, with de-individuation, what, what, what social psychologists think happens is that 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 calculus of like, man, I better not do something. I better not do this thing because it's horrible. That gets transferred to the group. And what happens, again, they're, they're kind of speculating about what well, we can't really know what happened to somebody else's brain. But what they think happens is kind of a calculus to the tune of like, whew, the group is going to do this thing. I, it's the group, man. I mean, I can't, what am I going to do? Like, I can't stop this group. Um, that thing kind of jumps the tracks and they're like, well, it might as well go along, you know, when in Rome, you know, like may, may as well go along to get along. That also feeds into a dynamic that, I mentioned a moment ago that these these families can off can often be kind of chaotic and abusive and and and, and traumatic. A kid growing up in that kind of system, or maybe somebody who marries into to that kind of chaotic, potentially violent system, if they're having a normal post-traumatic response to that, might be like, boy, I need to do what I need to do to survive in this system. And how likely is it if the rest of the system is doing something that is really high stakes, if they get caught, they're going to jail, they might get the death penalty, et cetera. They're, whew, if they see that I'm not going along and if they see that I'm potentially a threat to them by not going along, right? Like if they get it in their heads that, boy, maybe I have a moral problem with this and maybe that makes me likely to maybe rat them out, etc. That puts me in danger. And that's going to flip a switch in the nervous system of like, boy, you know, trauma response. I have to, I have to do what I need to do to survive. And that can range either from kind of this post-traumatic numbing of like, dude, I'm just going to go along to get along. Screw it. Or it can trigger a post-traumatic response that we call fawning. Like so there's there's you know there's there's fight and flight, which most everybody knows about. There are two other responses, there are lots of trauma responses. The two other big responses that we talk about, like there's just freezing, which is just eh, you do what you're gonna do. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and make myself as unnoticeable as possible, and maybe this will all just kind of pass. But there's this thing called fawning, which is where we try to be accommodating of the thing that we find threatening. Right. We think that this is where, uh, you know, the, the fawn, the post-traumatic fawn response may be what a Stockholm syndrome might have to do with. Right. Like, boy, I need to do what I need to do to survive here. And that means making myself available to and helpful to my abusers or the people who are doing these terrible things. Dude, survival's job number one. I got to do what I got to do. Right. So again, like these things can be really complex. And that's why it's really hard, I think, to, um, you know, on, on your episode where you discussed this, you, know, you kind of went into like degrees of moral responsibility and, and ooh, how much free will is really involved when you're in an abusive environment and, and, and whatnot. That's where these issues get really sticky because it's not like, dude, I wish we could just turn off post-traumatic responses. I wish we could. I wish there was a switch in our nervous system that we just, nope. You know, I'm turning off the fawn response. Unfortunately, as we know, there's not. This is one of the reasons why um, trauma um, survivors very often come through what they come through with this feeling of like responsibility for like, oh man, it was my fault. It was my fault. I didn't tell anybody. 
right? Or, or, or maybe I played along, you know, like, yeah. I think what kind of gets lost in that is an understanding that, boy, especially if you're young, but not just when you're young, like kind of all throughout the lifespan, now, if, if you have this post-traumatic reaction get triggered and your entire nervous system is kind of the survive mode, I, you know, the, the, the frontal cortex doesn't come into play. You know, we're, we're dealing with like a very reptilian survival response. You'll probably remember that in previous episodes covering this case, I castigated Ginger Taylor and Carolyn McCrary, the wives of Carl Taylor and Sherman McCrary, for standing by while their spouses raped and murdered other women. I felt they had a lot of culpability in what happened. I mostly stand by that, but I think it is important to talk about the possible context of that sort of behavior. It's interesting with the fawn response. We sort of saw that from Danny too. He was the youngest son. He actually expressed fear of Carl Taylor, who was the son-in-law. And sort of like one of the detectives who we spoke to basically said, if anybody had a shot at a totally normal life, it was him. He, he could have been, he could have been okay. And it's sad because he ended up getting life in jail. And it seemed like he was certainly the candidate for rehabilitation. That never really happened. But anyways, a uh, long-winded way to talk about in terms of the women here, right? There's the trauma element. And we also know that Carolyn uh, was raised by an alcoholic father who uh, kind of seemingly put her to work, earning money for the family like at like a very early age. And then of course, uh, Ginger, her daughter, is raised by Sherman McCrary, right? So where does the role of, um, you know, the families in which we're raised in play t- into situations like this where it might result in, you know, a woman sitting by while another woman is like raped and kind of just being like. Sure, sure. No, and, and I mean, this is going to get tiresome to, to, to hear me say again and again, but it's complicated, right? Um, something that we often see and, and that there have been lots and lots of theories advanced as to why this happens, but we often see uh, what looks like people recreating dynamics from when they grew up, when they were young. Like, like kind of the joke is that, oh, you always marry your father, you always marry your mother, like whatever it is. And sure, we kind of, you know, sometimes we see that pattern. And there have been lots of, of efforts to try and explain that. So like, so Freud, going all the way back to Freud, he was into this thing called um, uh, repetition compulsion. He thought it was an unconscious process by which we unconscious, not on purpose, but we unconsciously recreate what we grew up with. Like, so if we grew up with chaos and fear, we might marry a train wreck to kind of recreate that dynamic. And what Freud thought we were doing was trying to master it. Like what Freud thought we were doing is like, okay, like, you know, we're trying to kind of play the, do the escape room again and again until we can finally get out of the escape room. Lots of people have have different ideas about what you know, that might be true or not. I happen to, um, you know, like I'm more of a behavioral self-esteem guy. And, and what that means is I think that, you know, as we grow and as we develop, we get a, a certain idea of um, not necessarily what we deserve, although there's there's that. But, but we get an idea like, you know, you know what, are, what are my limits like, like, what's really out there for me? You know, like, so if I grow up in this just train wreck of a family, it's really hard for me to believe that I'm going to be the one to meet the awesome person and to have the awesome life, right? 
What's probably happened is I've probably gotten an idea in my head. And again, it's not my fault, but I've probably gotten an idea in my head that hmm, what usually happens to people like me? Yeah, I usually marry the not so awesome. I usually have to make some compromises just because that's who I am, right? And we call that a self-esteem thing because you know, self-esteem goes to you know what we uh, you know what we think we deserve, like. The, the psychologist who came up with the, not came up, like really wrote a lot about self-esteem in the early days, a guy by the name of Nathaniel Brandon thought that self-esteem had two components. Uh, one component was, can I do stuff? Am I efficacious? Can I manage the world? And the other part was like, do I deserve good stuff or do I deserve to be eternally punished? I think when we grow up in complicated households, both elements get damaged, right? Most often we kind of grow up, if we're in a train wreck of an environment growing up, and we, can, we get this idea that, whew, you know what, bad stuff is going to happen. I mean, what are you going to do? Maybe I can survive. That might be it. I'm certainly not going to master this, right? Because people just don't master stuff. I didn't see it growing up. The other piece of the equation is like, you know, do I deserve good stuff? If you, again, if you grew up in kind of a train wreck of an environment, you're probably like, boy, you know, why would I deserve good stuff? Why would anybody deserve good stuff? People suck, right? So there's that there's that hypothesis as to why people might grow up and kind of marry into these chaotic symptoms. On top of all of that, so it might be repetition compulsion, there might be a self-esteem issue. On top of, of all of that, again, we can never discount the, uh, the role of trauma and dissociation in all of this. So we grow up in an environment that is unpredictable, uncontrollable, frequently painful. A very common defense that we develop is something called dissociation. And it happens on a spectrum. And it's exactly what it sounds like. We can't escape the danger physically often. So in order to, to get through, we develop a, 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 an unconscious coping. Again, it's not, it's not like we choose to dissociate. We develop an unconscious coping method of like, you know what? I am emotionally, uh, consciously, my consciousness is going to remove itself from the situation. And we see this on a spectrum. Like we see this on a spectrum of just, you know, look, I'm going to just zone out here, right? Um, there's, there's a phenomenon that's connected to dissociation called depersonalization, where people actually feel themselves kind of floating outside of their body and kind of looking at the situation. That's how they cope with this terrible thing that's happening can go all the way up to what used to be called multiple personality disorders, now called dissociative identity disorder, where what's what's happening is, is so horrible and it's happening in such an inescapable way over such a long period of time. I can't just zone out because, man, I've, you know, I've got to somehow function. So I'm actually going to like different facets of me that look like different personalities are going to step forward and handle my everyday life because I cannot deal with the horror that is happening it's a really painful thing like we see kind of media depictions of dissociative identity disorders like oh it's this interesting thing where they're switching between personalities and how quirky it's enormously painful to the people it's an enormous pain in the neck for people who actually have it right my point is <laughs> you're saying it's a long-winded way but that's my long-winded way of saying that on top of whatever else is going on where people wind up involved in chaotic systems as adults when they grew up with chaotic systems. I, you know what? I should also say, just for what it's worth, this isn't the only path. There are absolutely people who grow up in chaotic systems and, and for whatever reason, they're able to get the hell out. You know, there are definitely people. And I don't want to make it like they're just strong enough to do that. 
sometimes they're lucky. Sometimes they're super lucky where they, they had an opportunity to get, you know, it, it's, it's not, it doesn't have to do with strength. It doesn't have to do with intelligence, you know, like, like, you know, for, there are lots of people who they grew up in chaos. They managed to get out, but for people who kind of grew up in chaos and then kind of married into chaos, in addition to what I've already mentioned, there's this dissociative piece where if you've been dissociating for years as the way to handle difficulty and pain and stress, you find yourself in a chaotic system in a marriage, you're probably still doing that even more so. Because now you're an adult and you know no one's coming to save you. And you know, until death be apart, this is the rest of your life. So I would be shocked if Again, not having examined these people, but I would be shocked if um, somebody who grew up kind of with that level of chaos and pain and violence that they probably grew up with were not dissociated out of their minds a lot of their adult times. Like, you know, you raise the question, like, you know, how can somebody just sit by while somebody else is like in front of them is just brutally assaulted and, and killed? I'm not entirely confident that they're there, right? Part of them might be. So again, it's 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 super complicated and, and, and it's really impossible to kind of analyze. Like if all things were equal um, and it was just a person, if it was just Anya or Kevin and put them down in front of somebody who's being brutally assaulted and, 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 and killed, all things being equal, I'd say, you know, sure, there is, there is, you know, we, we can talk about levels of responsibility of, of you know, um, that said, I think, again, when you grow up with like these complicated history, and this doesn't make an excuse, like something that, that we talk about in therapy a lot is that explanations are not excuses and excuses are not explanations. So I get really interested in explaining these things or, or hypothesizing about these things. In my mind, it's really hard to kind of go into moral responsibility and, and, and these kinds of things when like it's so complicated, right? A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one -on -one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. 
Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I think increasingly, even as society is more interested in true crime than ever, uh, there is almost like an idea of like, oh, it's just, you know, Ted Bundy, he's just bad and he just comes out of nowhere and gets you. And it's like, uh, well, I mean, it, maybe sometimes there's real extreme outliers within, uh, you know, a population, but also a lot of things feel like maybe if you had taken Sherman McCrary away from his family as a baby, I don't know. I mean, you could you could play mind games all day, right? But you bet. You you bet. Something that I think our culture just just as a rule doesn't talk enough about that's really relevant to this issue of addiction and and how that plays out in families and behavior later on. I think our culture doesn't discuss the issue of neglect near enough. Like we very often discuss trauma and 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 often when somebody says trauma, it's assumed that they're talking about abuse and and often we are. Um, I think what's less understood and less talked about is neglect. So when you have a kid who's growing up, like let's say a kid is being raised by one or two or more addicts, by definition, if somebody is an addict, that means they are heavily involved with their substance or behavior of choice, right? It's consuming a lot of their wattage, right? That kid is probably not getting what they need in terms of attachment, in terms of, of modeling, in terms of, of learning, right? Uh, neglect happens in a lot of, uh, like, you know, like we think of neglect as like, well, I, I put the kid off in a corner and I never talked to him. That's not the only way neglect happens. Neglect happens when kids don't get what they need. And you got to think that in systems that are being mostly run by, by addicts, and this is not a, a moral finding, like, oh, yeah, these dirty addicts. I'm saying by definition, like if you're an addict, I say this as a recovering addict, if you're an addict, you're having a relationship with that substance that is probably, that substance or behavior that is probably superseding all your other relationships, including with your kids, right? So a lot of this, I think, can be understood through the lens of neglect. What did these kids need that, um, that they didn't get growing up? And again, you can kind of boil it down to like, you know, we need attachment. We need a certain level of, of psychological, emotional, and physical safety, right? Like we, we need a certain amount of, of positive modeling, specifically going back to what I said earlier, modeling about how to handle stuff either inside or coming from the outside, right? A kid who doesn't get all that is often getting it but kind of scattershot from a variety of sources that may or may not be terribly constructive. 
and it can really add up to a, an adult who, again, it's it's not a, a moral judgment, but an adult who really, really struggles to manage something like sadistic impulses or sexual impulses or you know, whatever. In, in some ways, um, you know, I, I don't want to kind of go off on, on, on a random hypothesis about what this crime might have been about, but I think I will. Um, I kind of wonder if this family kind of revolved around chaotic systems growing up, present, etc., where there wasn't a lot of what we call affect management. There wasn't a lot of emotional soothing. There wasn't a lot of like healthy emotional behavioral management. The project of stalking and killing uh, you know these these donut shop employees may have been one of the few regulating bonding things that anybody in the system had right like if you grew up with like really scrambled attachment what psychologists call disorganized attachment like if you grew up like not really knowing if you wanted or if you're safe or, or if the people were supposed to be there are going to be there grow up with like like really disorganized attachment if you find a project even if it's a ghastly project that allows you to feel connected to you know the people in your family system and allows you to like oh maybe there is a maybe the entire universe is unpredictable but what is predictable is we will find a donut shop and what is predictable is that like this is how this is going to go right it really speaks to the thirst for connection and regulation that possibly you know, some of these people grew up with and were still experiencing, right? Yeah, I think you're really spot on. And it's like, they're, you know, it's like putting it like it's us versus them. We're a family. We're together. We're in this together, yeah, you know? And like, I mean, what, I mean, I've read a little bit about dysfunctional and addictive family systems and my understanding, and this also kind of falls into the spectrum of like, committing a crime right where there there's a lot of if a parent is addicted or a parent is dysfunctional or neglectful in a, in a way there's a lot of talking around that issue and there's like we're not gonna we're not gonna address that almost like a lot of denial a lot of enabling a lot of saying all right we're just gonna we're gonna keep going in the mobile around this and yeah. and like you know it, i mean i don't know just speaking off off the cuff that just seems to be something that would um would benefit a family system that's intent on killing other people because it's, you know, kind of like, we're all going to stay in this together, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, also think about, um, you know, like, like I know a lot is made in the literature um, about, uh, you know, especially serial killers and the issue of, of perceived personal um, autonomy or power. Like if you think about a, a family system that, uh, you know, they, they were not great, you know, they, they were struggling socioeconomically. Um, you know, the, the the money wasn't always there. The stability wasn't always there. This is probably something, This it might have been something that in addition to helping them feel regulated and connected, helped them feel powerful, man. Like, you know, you know this is the thing that, you know, yeah, I can assert dominance over, over you know, this vulnerable person. In addition, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, pretty well established that, you know, part of the motive for a lot, not just serial killers, just a lot of criminals, is kind of a, a narcissistic rush that I can do this thing and maybe not get caught. 
and maybe I can do it again and again. Maybe I can get so bold as to do it like with a lay motif, like donut shops or whatever. And, and there's a feeling of power. This is one of the reasons why forensic psychologists speculate, you know, why why serial killers often, like you, you kind of hear the cliche that something you know, they want to get caught, right? So they start making mistakes and they start getting bolder and they start leaving clues to their identity, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of helps to maybe explain that phenomenon of, you know, they've gotten a taste of what it's like to have kind of power over, man, the authorities, Right, like, like I'm sufficiently smart that I can do these things and get away with them, etc. So, <laughs> yeah, and of course, the the grand culmination of of this family's crime was Carl Taylor walking unmasked into a grocery store in broad daylight and uh, robbing the place. Didn't kidnap anybody, but then of course gets pursued and steals a car, and it you know it, it all sort of fell apart after that. And, and like you look at that, and you're like, what were you thinking, man? Like, like even though they weren't necessarily, I wouldn't categorize them as particularly like sophisticated crimes. I think uh, there is something to be said for going states away from your home, killing somebody, and leaving where you have no attachment to the area. But yeah. like doing that right in your neighborhood, you know, hey, I'm Carl Taylor. I mean, that's just. Uh, it, but it makes sense in the sense of like we're escalating because it feels good you know there was something interesting about that because like so and correct me if i'm wrong he went and did that came back and the rest of the family was like whoa what are you doing we want no part of this like you dummy like what there was suddenly there was a division that's exactly right the family was apparently pretty ticked off at carl taylor for pulling that hasty giordano's robbery It's a moment that really highlights the clash of egos between Taylor and McCrary. How their murderous collaboration started to fall apart. In a sick way, it almost sounds like Taylor was trying to stake out on his own. Make his own name in the family business. Which, in this case, happened to be violence, robbery, and murder. People don't think straight when we're being driven by especially dynamics that, that have to do with with our family. Uh, I was about to say our family of origin, this wasn't his family of origin, but but when, you know, like, like we've all seen examples, like we all probably have examples of when like, I know the smart thing to do is this, but I feel like I'm in competition with my brother or my parents or like whatever, you know, I mean, the, our, our decision-making gets a little, and the reason for that, I mean, broadly speaking, from a neuropsychological perspective, is we're no longer deciding from here. We're deciding from the middle of our brain, from here, <laughs> right? And that part of our brain doesn't take into consideration things like potential consequences and potential liabilities and, and, and flaws in our plan, et cetera, et cetera. Like it reminds me of, to use yet another example from popular media, there's a, a movie, Gone in 60 Seconds, about car thieves. I, I think in the Nicolas Cage remake, not the original. So there's a sophisticated gang of, 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 of car thieves. And, and Nicolas Cage's little brother, like Nicolas Cage is the master car thief. And his little brother is being played by Giovanni Ribisi. And out of nowhere, one night, Giovanni Ribisi like pulls in with, 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 with a car he's just stolen off the street. He's so proud. He wants to show his big brother that he could be this awesome car thief too. And Nicholas is like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're just, you're going to leave the cops right there. This is not how we do this, right? Our brain kind of breaks when those dynamics are at play, right? It, it Maybe they're a very extreme example, but they're obviously a very extreme example, but the, 
the dysfunction that could lead people to um, a life of crime or or bad decision making or hurting other people, you know, is part of is part of this human condition. <laughs> it's not a. It's not just they sprang from the, oh, the Texas yeah. Earth. <laughs> well, and it's really important to, you know. So I so I mentioned to you guys that my my internship was a forensic internship. So I did a lot of evaluations about about fitness to stand trial, mostly. I, I did some evaluations about, uh, you know, if somebody was looking at a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, you know, sometimes there's a psychological evaluation involved in that. I would do that. But most of my stuff was about fitness to stand trial. And it's important, I think, to to note that while we're trying to kind of figure out what behavior like this is all about, it's important to make the distinction that you know, nobody, including me, is is at all saying that mental illness or or post traumatic responses or or anything like that causes criminality, right? Or or causes sadism. We can take a look at the, the, you know the reason why we're we're looking at those factors is because we observe that these people did something that most human beings don't do. And these people did something that most human beings not only don't do, but would have a pretty strong response to, right? Like a pretty strong negative response to. So when we try to speculate about like, huh, what was going on with these people? You know, we think about like, all right, so what are our experiences that tend to be relatively rare within the human condition? Like, so the type of, of, of trauma and neglect we think of as relatively rare, mostly because the cases that we hear of tend to be the extreme cases, right? Like these are the cases that wind up in the media or get written about or whatnot. Really important though, to remember that abuse, neglect, you know, growing up in chaotic environments, actually way more common than we think. And the vast majority of people, even the vast majority of people, um, you know, sometimes we think of, you know, like, so, what might incline somebody toward criminality? Well, a psychotic, they're schizophrenic. Maybe they don't know the difference between right and wrong. Really important to, to, to realize the vast majority of schizophrenics are, are, are not violent. The vast majority of people who grew up in, in, in you know, chaotic, you know, traumatic households do not grow up to do stuff like this. So even though we're kind of speculating about what might have contributed to, to what happens here, and it's also worth remembering that even this, like, even if everything we've speculated about checks out, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that caused that, right? Uh, you know, and, and, and I think that's always interesting, right? When there's like a mass murderer, where there's a serial killer, and they have siblings, uh, you know, who were raised in the exact same circumstances who, you know, didn't do that. And it's sort of like people, people certainly make choices. Uh, maybe those choices are informed by bad stuff happening past trauma, but it's, it's certainly... It doesn't mean that you uh, have to inflict that on on other people and you know spread the trauma around. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a real bummer when when kind of these horrific things happen. Like so, when a shooting happens, like invariably, like I, I have to go off social media for a couple of days because I, I can't handle the debate that mental health gets dragged into. Yeah. about like, you know, whatever you want to do with, with gun control and gun regulation, invariably there's, there's a piece of the conversation that seems to revolve around like, well, if you're mentally ill, now that's, that's a, a massive predisposing thing because it's not. 
And, and not only is it not, statistically speaking, not only is it not a massive predisposing factor, um, but when we enshrine that, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but when we kind of institutionalize that line of thought by, by encoding it into legislation, it's really hard to unring that bell in terms of stigma. You know, and, and, and it's and granted, it wouldn't be the first or the only thing that government ever does that is completely contrary to what the research shows and what we know to be true, et cetera, et cetera. Like government is ultimately responsible to voters. They do things that voters sound good to voters, whether or not they're true. So again, I'm not trying to put unrealistic expectations on what we know to be like a very political thing. But again, like I, it really bothers me when, and I, and, and your listeners are, are probably, I'm going to imagine this isn't the, the, the first or the only true crime show they listen to. I like listening to, to true crime shows. And I, th- I think it's really important when we're listening to this genre to really cock an ear toward, you know, what assumptions are being made about whether it's a trauma history or, or you know, mental illness or mental health or, or whatnot. So, I mean, it's, it's really rough because most, the vast majority of, of emotional and behavioral struggles like I think it's a I think it's a bigger discussion than mental illness. Like I think we're talking about emotional struggles, uh, struggles regulating and expressing our emotions, and struggles regulating our behavior. Right. The vast majority of emotional behavioral struggles fly under the radar. You know, when it, it drives me up a wall when I see um, you know s- statistics bandied about, whether it's by government agencies or or news organizations or whatnot. Um, about you know statistically speaking, X many people are of of this gender or this class, like you know whatever are 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 abused or neglected, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, true, but it's really important to remember that you're you're getting what is knowable and reportable. There are so many people listening to this who have a trauma history that no one's going to know about, except them, because maybe they you know for whatever reason either they they don't have access, don't want, maybe it doesn't rise to the level where it's messing up their life enough to, to you know, for it ever to come to a, a, the attention of someone who would like impute that into a database of, of, of some sort. So again, I, you know, these, I, I'm so, one of the reasons I'm, I'm thrilled to come on and, and talk with you guys about this is I think that there needs to be, um, especially around crime and, and true crime and criminality and motive and, and these kinds of things, there needs to be so much nuance kind of in the conversation uh, because, you know, boy, we are a culture and a world that is hurting emotionally and behaviorally. And that doesn't always come out in the official reports that doesn't always come out in kind of these broader conversations about you know, cultural problems and, So how does a family go so very wrong? Well, based on our conversation with Dr. Doyle, it doesn't seem fair to blame just one thing. And flattening out the discussion with quick and easy allegations about addicts or mental illness clearly is not the right path. It seems the McCrary-Taylor clan was afflicted by suffering, poverty, trauma, and addiction. We really loved what Dr. Doyle said about how we all live in a world that's hurting. Hopefully, by understanding that, we can try to hurt one another less, try to uplift those who are hurting, and push our leaders and lawmakers to enact policies that reduce hurt and offer healing. 
Here's Dr. Doyle to close us out. If I could just leave with the message that I that I just kind of elaborated upon, that you know whatever we might be able to understand about you know people or a family, a system, whatever, knowing what necessarily little we do know. Like, like we know what we know, but we don't know what we don't know about this family system and and, and what was actually going on, etc. And we can kind of speculate, but you know whatever hypotheses we can generate as long as we can just be mindful of the fact that you know it's not the case that mental or emotional um, uh, or behavioral struggles necessarily kind of create these circumstances that you know like all we're trying to do is is what everyone is trying to do and that's kind of make sense of of painful horrible things because we don't want these things to happen in our world you know if I could just encourage everybody um, to, to, to Google or read up on childhood neglect, um, there's an excellent book titled Running on Empty. It's about childhood neglect that, that is a, a, a more inclusive and nuanced conversation about what neglect actually is. I think a lot of people, um, if they check that out or even just check out some of the resources about childhood neglect, you begin to really understand, you know, kind of what role neglect plays in addiction and trauma and, and kind of a lot of these issues that we're kind of nibbling around the, the edges of here. Thanks again to Dr. Doyle. We really appreciated his thoughtful insight. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on the Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MurderSheet, and on Facebook at MSheetPodcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to the Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to MurderSheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.